These are the stories of the greatest, most influential figures in the history of humankind. Welcome to the Sapiens Pantheon. Our story is a story of France, a story of chaos, a story of change, and a story of an ambition unequaled in human history. Our story is the story of Napoleon Bonaparte. But our story doesn't start in France, because Napoleon wasn't French. So when we begin our story of the man who would become first consul of the French Republic, and later emperor of the French, we have to start our story on an island. A small island in the Mediterranean Sea, part way between France and the Italian Peninsula. That island's name is Corsica. Since about 1284, on and off, Corsica has been owned by the Republic of Genoa, one of several independent city-states that make up what we now refer to as Italy. It's a beautiful island. It's covered in palm trees and mountains. Its largest town, Ajaccio, is a gorgeous coastal town, and it's got this huge marketplace, again, full of palm trees and people and ports and buildings of so many different colors. History has this tendency to be viewed in black and white, like an old grainy footage type thing. But try to imagine what this place must have looked like in the 18th century, in full color. You can feel the heat and the sea spray. I find history much more engaging when you try to watch it like a movie in your head. Now, while Corsica was technically owned by Genoa, there's a really strong sense of Corsican nationalism that was just running through the place that led them to resist the idea of being just another Italian colony. It's kind of like you were from Corsica and you were Corsican. And Corsicans should just be left alone to govern their own affairs, like that sort of thing. The guy that was at the head of this kind of current Corsican nationalism was this charismatic, kind of serious-looking man named Pascale Paoli. And Paoli was the governor slash dictator slash president of Corsica, and had been for a long time. And he was, like I said, super fiercely nationalistic. He was very opposed to Italian rule. So in 1755, he made a declaration to Italy that Corsica would no longer be an Italian colony, but it would be its own independent Corsican republic that he was willing to defend by force if necessary. And Genoa was kind of frustrated by this, because it's always annoying when that colony you have, you know, it wants to leave the nest. Uh, just ask England how it's going to feel about that in about 20 years after this. So it sends a couple of forces to try and restore order, but Pauli had a national guard of soldiers that had fought them off. And so it just kind of went on like that. They were just really being a thorn in Genoa's side, and so Genoa basically just gives up. They're not doing super great economically. They're tired of fighting a war with a tiny island, and they don't really have the resources to keep it going. So they do the equivalent of like a diplomatic hot potato, and they just sell it to Louis XV who is currently the king of France. Now, France at the time was an absolute monarchy, where the king and the royal family have absolute power. There's no way Louis is just going to let this land be an independent republic. So right away, he sends a military force to crush the rebellion and take Corsica for France that was headed by one of the noblemen in his court, the Comte de Marbeuf. Pauli starts preparing for a war against the French, and he takes on a man from the minor Corsican nobility to help him as an aide-de-camp, which is basically like a personal assistant slash secretary that just organizes things on the battlefield for you. He takes on a tall, popular, handsome, and somewhat intelligent man by the name of Carlo Buonaparte. The Buonaparte, which would later change their name to Bonaparte family, had immigrated to Corsica from Florence, another one of those independent city-states, a little over 200 years prior, and they pursued work in the church, in law, and in academia, starting to earn some respect and build themselves into what amounted to a minor nobility in the standard Western European civilization. 
And for those unfamiliar, I'll explain a little more about the European class system a little bit later. But the important thing to know is that there's this growing middle class of people that were wealthy, but they weren't noble by birth. And they didn't fit into any of the three major classes. And that's where the Bonapartes, or as they were known at this point, the Bonapartes, fit in. The war against the French did not go well for Corsica. At the time, France had just finished up the reign of Louis XIV, who was known as the Sun King, and he was obsessed with waging war in pretty much all of Europe. So at this point, the French military is probably still the most dominant military power in the world. The French take over fairly swiftly, and Pauli is exiled. The Comte de Marbeuf, and I have to note, I'm apologizing sincerely for my lack of agility with French pronunciation. I'm doing my best. The Comte de Marbeuf has a meeting with all of the Corsican kind of quasi-aristocracy, all the, you know, upper class of the island, just to make sure they would basically fall in line and swear loyalty to France. And Carlo was in that meeting. He had a decision to make. Would he maintain his loyalty as a Corsican freedom fighter, or accept the subjugation of an even stronger foreign power than Genoa? Going against the French state ran the risk of getting him executed for treason. And you have to imagine that while he was sitting in that fancy room, he thought of his family at home. He thought of his infant son, whose birth name was Giuseppe, but he would later change it to Joseph. And his wife, Maria Letizia Bonaparte, who was heavily, heavily pregnant. Carlo knew he needed to play it safe so he could be around to support his growing family. So he swore an oath of loyalty to King Louis XV. It cost him a lot of the Corsican friends that he made in battle, but Carlo soon came to understand the benefits that French rule could bring to the island, and for the rest of his life, those close to him described him as a good Frenchman. He was made the Corsican ambassador to the French government, and he settled down with Maria into a new life, and shortly after, their second son was born. And they named him Napoleon Bonaparte. Not much is known about the early childhood of Napoleon. Analysis of his body after his death found some scarring in his lungs that likely meant he had a terrible cough through most of his early years due to some undiagnosed tuberculosis. But the most important thing about young Napoleon was his insatiable appetite for books. As soon as he learned to read, he tore through his father's library with alarming speed. It was clear from an early age that Napoleon Bonaparte had a gifted mind and a staggeringly good memory, particularly for military history. Luckily for him, about a year after he was born, the Comte de Marbeuf issues an edict stating that all Corsican families that could prove at least two centuries of nobility would be granted all the social privileges and status afforded to the French nobility, which was huge, because at this point in European history, uh, being a part of the nobility, especially in a country like France, gives you all kinds of advantages in life. And again, I'll explain more about the class system in a little bit. But Carlo was thrilled by this, and so he applied to be admitted into the French noblesse, the noble class. And while there weren't really any official nobility in Corsica, they still had some vague traces of noble blood from way back when, when the Bonapartes were in Italy. That, accompanied by Carlo's budding friendship with Marbeuf, was enough to get his application approved. And the Bonapartes became officially a part of the French nobility. And this was a really good thing for Napoleon, because while Carlo was relatively well off, he certainly wasn't rich, and he had no hopes of paying for a high-quality education for all of his sons. But at the time, the French state was willing to grant what were effectively scholarships to the sons of the French aristocracy, provided they met three conditions. They had to be noble, check, thanks to Carlo's friendship with Mabouf. They must be unable to pay the tuition, check, thanks to Carlo's out-of-control spending habits, and they had to be fluent in French. Which was a problem, as Napoleon grew up speaking Corsican, which is kind of like Italian, and French was completely unknown to him. This boy was about to become the most famous man in the history of France, and not only was he not born there, he didn't even speak the language. So when the young Napoleon turns nine years old in 1779, he has his first real test. If he wants to get his education, he has to master the French language first. 
On January 1st, he was shipped off to the continent, which is how they referred to the French mainland, to a little school in Autonne, Burgundy, where he was allowed to receive instruction in the language. Going forwards, almost all of Napoleon's instructors and peers will be blown away by how quickly he can learn and understand a subject. The dude was truly a genius. It took him three months to learn the French language, at nine years old, but he did have a pretty heavy Italian accent that he would keep with him for the rest of his life. Now that he could speak the language, Napoleon officially qualified for the scholarship from the French government, and he was admitted into the Royal Military School in Brille-le-Chateau, in the Champagne region, where Champagne is from. He was taught by a group of monks in fairly spartan conditions. The students were allowed one bed and one desk and nothing else. Brille-le-Chateau wasn't one of the most socially desirable schools, but it was still a super high-quality education. They studied math, Latin, history, French, German, geography, physics, how to build effective fortifications, weaponry, fencing, dancing, and music. And like before, Napoleon's favorite subject was history, particularly military history. But he excelled in physics and mathematics, too. He was even allowed to take a bunch of more advanced math classes early. The amount of information that this kid could take in was just ridiculous, and he couldn't get enough. When his classmates went outside to play during breaks, Napoleon would go up to the library, and he would read the classics, works by Julius Caesar, Cicero, Voltaire, Denis Diderot, Erasmus, Virgil. What a nerd, right? The rest of the school thought so too, and Napoleon was teased pretty relentlessly, both for being a geek, for his thick Corsican accent, and for the fact that his family didn't have the cash to send him to school like the rest of the more established nobility. But he didn't let that stop him, though, and in 1784, he passes his final exams with flying colors, earns an outstanding report from his teachers, and was recommended to the highly prestigious École Royale Militaire, the Royal Military Academy in Paris. Now, while Brien-le-Chateau was kind of like a middle-of-the-road school, the École Royale Militaire was a top military academy in Paris, and it was right in this urban center of the country. Napoleon was the first Corsican to ever be admitted into the academy. He was offered a position in the naval program, but he actually declined it. He was much more interested in the newer, more prestigious artillery program, which was blowing up as the artillery technology developed. The artillery program was seen as a group of elites, the military savants, and only 14 of the 202 applications were accepted. But Napoleon made the cut, and one of his teachers at Brille-le-Chateau gave a good statement of his character at this stage, saying that, quote, He left school with pride and a sentiment of dignity, a warlike instinct, a genius for form, a love of order, and of discipline." End quote. He was 15 years old. But almost before he can begin at the école, early the next year, Carlo Bonaparte dies, and it throws the Bonaparte family into disarray. Even though Joseph, who at this point has officially changed his name in order to appear less Italian, is the oldest brother, Napoleon quickly establishes himself as the new patriarch of the family. Napoleon and Joseph have a really interesting relationship. Joseph is potentially the only man that Napoleon truly loves over the course of his life, and they remain very close over, you know, the rest of their lives, but Napoleon knows that Joseph's talents lay in a different area, and knew that he could never be a soldier or a leader in his own right. He would later use Joseph's diplomatic talents extensively, and rely on him for some crucial negotiations. But now, in 1785, Napoleon is taking over the dominant position in his family, and that means he has to start supporting them. So he takes his exams early, after less than one year after the usual three. And it comes in 42nd out of 48 in his final exams, which is pretty terrible. But if you take into consideration the time he did it in, less than one year versus three years, which is the normal, that was incredible. With his schooling cut short by the need to feed his family, Napoleon dedicated himself fully to his military career. And on the 1st of September, 1785, he was commissioned into his first military position, the Compagnie d'Autum of Bombardiers, in the 5th Brigade of the 1st Battalion Regiment de la Ferre. 
He's one of the youngest soldiers they have at 16 years old, and again, he's the only Corsican. But this was peacetime, as close to peacetime as you can get in this era in Europe. So Napoleon, you know, had a little free time on his hands. So he had to continue his education on his own time. He still read constantly, and he kept a pretty large collection of books in the small barracks where he was staying. He started writing his own works, too, of all types, as was popular at this time, you know, in the Age of Enlightenment, which I'll explain a little bit later. Uh, he writes some essays, he writes histories, philosophical treatises, stuff like that, all sorts of different topics. And a lot of people look at this as Napoleon's emo phase. He wrote a lot of essays about suicide and sadness and, you know, the crushing weight of the world. But he also wrote a lot of letters about Corsican nationalism, you know, about how Corsica should be determined by Corsicans, I mean, even though at the time he was living in France. And this continued for several years. This was kind of the status quo. Napoleon would drill with his regiment, occasionally, you know, shutting down some peasant revolts, uh, riots, and spending all the rest of his free time trying to develop himself intellectually. And sometimes he would write a letter to a superior officer and do the equivalent of calling in sick for a couple months at a time. He would go visit his family in Corsica. All was relatively quiet for Napoleon. But if you were paying attention to the dates I was mentioning, 1785, 86, 87, 88, you might be starting to realize that this is the calm, and there's a storm coming. In the early months of 1789, Napoleon's regiment was sent down the river to a place called Sun, and due to some disorganized circumstances, Napoleon was made second in command of an operation to quell a large riot that had killed two people in a smaller village. These riots had been increasing in frequency lately, but this one was much bigger. Napoleon did his job quickly and efficiently, and he oppressed his general, but the mobs were only growing bigger. Something was starting to happen in France. To talk about what's next, we have to go back a little bit and talk about France in the 18th century. During the period we've been talking about, France is under control by a political and social structure that we call now the Ancien Regime. The Ancien Regime is similar to what a lot of people imagine when they think of the medieval era, the Middle Ages. It's very similar to what you would see on Game of Thrones, for example. You know how in Game of Thrones there are these super powerful families that rule over a lot of territory? It's very similar in real history, and just like how the Starks rule Winterfell and the Lannisters rule King's Landing, France, in 1789, is under the rule of the Bourbon family, and has been since the late 1500s. The current Bourbon king is a guy called Louis XVI, and if your first thought was, man, there are a lot of French kings named Louis, you'd be correct. When it comes to dynasties like this, there's not a lot of creativity when it comes to names. Not only are there an excessive amount of Louis and Henrys and Charleses, some of them came right after another. In fact, once you get Louis XIII in the early 1600s, it's literally just one Louis after another until the time we're talking about with Napoleon. During this period of history, which we call the early modern period of Europe, France was ruled by an absolute monarchy, which for the most part meant that the king had the absolute highest authority over anything else in the state. Kings claimed that they ruled by divine right, ergo the Christian god had imbued in them the power to rule. And speaking of Christianity, the Catholic Church is way, way more powerful and important in this period than it is today. Ever since the fall of the Roman Empire, the Catholic Church took over as kind of the primary social institution in Europe that you know, held order and held things away from chaos, and had a crazy pervasive influence into most people's lives. It operated almost as like a state by itself, a state within a state, and had a lot of rights and privileges. And if we look at the late Middle Ages, as nation-states like France and England start to emerge, the monarchs had to consolidate their power by uh, constraining the power of the other two dominant groups, the church and the nobles. 
and at the historical point we're talking about, the monarchs of Europe have done so with some mixed success. France was at the pinnacle of absolute monarchy under the Sun King Louis, Louis XIV, who mentioned earlier. That was when the king had the absolute most power of anyone. You know, they had taken away the power of the nobles and of the church. Uh, the power of England's king has been reduced by the parliament, so that's what I mean about mixed success. And we get to tell that story in another episode when we look at Oliver Cromwell. In the present day, most countries have class separations that are based on kind of socioeconomic status. There's the poor, the middle class, and the rich, roughly speaking. In early modern Europe, though, the distinction wasn't so much about how much money you had. Instead, it was literally who you were. The social structure in France in this era has three rigid social classes, called estates. The king and the royal family weren't a part of the system, but everyone else was. The first estate was the clergy, all the religious leaders and officials of the Catholic Church, and they had a set of privileges in society. The second estate was a little bigger, and it was the nobility, the noblesse in France, the privileged class. The nobility were wealthy, born into families that were old and powerful, and basically were just legally better than you. They didn't have to pay any taxes, even though they had all the money, and owned basically all the land. Those two estates made up maybe 2% of the population, the clergy and the nobility. Literally everyone who wasn't either a church official or born into a noble family was a member of the third estate, which made up about 98% of the population and for the longest time basically meant that you were an illiterate subsistence farmer, or a peasant. And if you're in the third estate, your life sucks. You don't own any land, you don't own any money, you do have to pay the taxes, and you're probably going to starve unless you're really good at uh, farming, you know, making money that way. Looking back on it, it doesn't really seem like the most stable way to structure your society, hey? This ancien regime had existed for a long, long time, but in the 18th century, things are starting to change a little bit. I mentioned earlier that this Bonaparte family was somewhat well off, but not really noble, and that's a group that's been growing in this time period, a kind of nouveau riche bourgeoisie type that doesn't really fit into any one of these three estates. What happens when someone who's technically a peasant has a thriving business and has more money than a noble? Something was going to have to change. So there are some social tensions, but there are also some economic issues as well. Actually, that's putting it way too mildly. France is in a fucking disastrous, full-blown financial crisis by the time we get to Louis XVI. For the last little while, really the last hundred years, France has been engaged pretty much constantly in one war or another, sometimes even four or five at the same time. A big one that just wrapped up was the Seven Years' War. Now, the Seven Years' War is one of my favorite historical events of all time. It's super underrated. Not many people are super aware of what happened, but some historians have taken to calling it World War Zero because that's how big it was. But we don't have any time to get into that today. We'll learn a little more about World War Zero in later episodes, when you get into people like Frederick the Great and George Washington, who both played a role. But for now, here's what we need to know about the French Revolution and Napoleon's story. France spent a fuck ton of money fighting the Seven Years' War, and it ended with them pretty much losing all of their territory in North America to the British. Which is why I, a Canadian citizen, am speaking English right now instead of French. From that point on, France is no longer a colonial power in the world, and now they're in catastrophic debt. So you'd think that they'd see that they're in catastrophic debt and start, I don't know, cutting spending, doing some better financial planning. Well, that's not what happened. France was super mad at the British. French is always super mad at the British, but they were especially mad after losing all their North American territories. So when the American colonies start rebelling against the British in the American Revolution about 15 years later, so when the American colonies start rebelling against the British in the American Revolution, about 15 years later, King Louis XV decides to start funding their operations so they can stick it to the British. He sends a ludicrous amounts of money, guns, and ships over to America so they can compete. And as you all know, it paid off and the Americans declared their independence and they were successful. This doesn't really help France very much because they were already in debt and now they're even more in debt. 
and people will kind of know this too. The basic staple of the people's diet, especially the third estate, uh, was bread. And the price of bread was on everyone's mind, and it fluctuated a lot during this time. The government of France had some finance ministers that tried to help, but they ended up just making it worse. And in some places, the price of bread doubled, and then it tripled, and then it quadrupled, and then it just got so expensive that people couldn't even afford it anymore. So the people started rioting and starving. And this was made even worse by the fact that the nobles and the royal family and the clergy were publicly and loudly spending ridiculous amounts of money on the most extravagant things, too. Kind of the most prominent example of this was Louis XVI's wife, Queen Marie Antoinette. Louis XVI was never super popular, and he actually didn't really, really want to be king either. He kind of just liked fixing clocks and doing stuff like that. But his uh, being married to Marie Antoinette certainly did not do him any favors in the court of public opinion. Marie Antoinette was known to everyone as a big spender, to the point where she was often referred to as Madame Deficit, which is a savage nickname. Uh, she spent hundreds of thousands of francs on dresses and other types of clothing, and even... Okay, this is still this is still crazy to me. She arranged for a mock peasant village to be built, so she could basically play pretend at being a part of the third estate. That is true. Can you imagine being a starving, illiterate farmer and having to watch this woman spend ridiculous sums of money on clothes and cake, and then she has the audacity to play pretend at being poor like it's fun? It's not surprising that Marie Antoinette was maybe the most hated person in France at the time. She embodied the ingrained inequality in French society, and it was making people mad. This was a source of those riots that Napoleon, as a member of the French military, was trying to squash. People are starving and oppressed and angry, and they wanted to do something about it. A wave of resentment and frustration was growing and growing, and eventually it was going to crash against the shore. To try and figure out what to do to solve this quickly worsening financial crisis, King Louis appointed a finance minister, but, uh, well, he wasn't really a minister because he was Protestant and not Catholic, and that was unacceptable at the time. But he was basically a finance minister by the name of Jacques Necker. Necker was one of those figures that was a subscriber to the ideas of the Enlightenment, which is another thing that I'll probably get into further in a later episode. But basically, what the Enlightenment means for us here is it's a body of thought that says people should make decisions based on reason and logic, and argues for things like freedom, religious tolerance, science, that kind of thing. Necker, applying this kind of Enlightenment thought to the French financial system, was pretty disgruntled by all these complicated, inefficient tax systems that France had at the time not to mention unfair. One of Necker's bright ideas to fix it was to call a meeting of a certain legislative body called the Estée Générale, which was made up of delegates from all three estates. A calling of the Estée Générale is a pretty rare event. In 1789, when Necker decided to bring it back, it hadn't met for 175 years, and no one really knew slash remembered the exact proceedings of it. But the gist of it went like this. When voting on a matter, each estate got one vote. The problem with that, if you haven't already put it together, is that the clergy and the nobility usually agreed on what they wanted to happen, because they wanted to maintain their privileged place in society, and they could always outvote the third estate two votes to one, even though, as you recall, the vast majority of people were in the third estate. And the third estate kind of knew this, knew that they would be outvoted regardless of what they did, and so they started making some arguments to try and reform the system to be a little more fair. Because remember, a lot of these people are now really well-educated and really rich, they just are a part of the technical peasant status. Many of them proposed to change the system so that instead of voting by a state, where they would always be outvoted by the nobility and the clergy, they would vote by head, you know, one vote per person, which would dramatically increase the power of the third estate and represent the population much, much better. And while the meeting was initially called to deal with the financial crisis, the actual debate quickly became about representation for the estates. And at first, these arguments were pretty polite. Some influential thinkers, prominent figures of the Third Estate, starting writing at the time were no what were known as the Cahiers de Doléances, or the Notebook of Grievances. With respectful requests to the king, 
accompanied by a lot of thank yous to the king for calling this in the first place, but these largely went unheard and they started getting a little bit more aggressive over time. The Abbe Emmanuel Joseph Sies published a pamphlet, which became kind of the manifesto of the French people at the time, called What is the Third Estate? And it was very simple. It said, What is the Third Estate? Everything. What has it been so far? Nothing. What does it want? To become something. Simple and powerful. Remember the Sies guy. He's going to be a very important character going forwards. Another important character is a young lawyer by the name of Maximilien Robespierre, who is appointed to be one of the delegates of the Third Estate, in the new meeting of the Estate General. Once it opened, Robespierre quickly established himself as one of the leading figures of this new movement, constantly giving passionate speeches about justice and representation for his estate. The debates went on for a couple of months, and the delegates of the Third Estate, still pushing for reform of the system to give the Third Estate a more equitable share of the voting power, actually had some decent success. They even won some of the nobility over to their side. They started meeting up on their own, outside of the Estate General, getting more and more passionate about reform and fairness, and eventually they started calling themselves the National Assembly, declaring that they didn't just represent the Third Estate, they represented the entire nation. There were about 600 delegates total, but this was a group of leaders that was emerging. Siez was one. Robespierre was another one. Another guy called the Comte de Mirabeau was another one. These people are all fairly wealthy, very intelligent, and very frustrated with the current system. Now, if you're the king, and you see a bunch of wealthy, intelligent, subjugated people getting both more organized and more passionate, that's terrifying. That's starting to become a threat to your power. And now they're saying that they're refusing to confine themselves into the bounds of the estate that you've created? They're saying they're representatives of the true nation? Something has got to be done. So in an attempt to keep control, Louis orders that the room where the estate general literally be closed, and the doors are literally bolted, under the pretty flimsy excuse that some carpenters had to do some work in there or something. But the National Assembly refused to be silenced. Without the ability to meet in the regular room, they met in the only nearby space that could fit them all, an indoor tennis court. And the National Assembly is pissed. They think the king is trying to shut them down, which is exactly what he was doing. So together, they declare that they will not stop, they will not rest, and they will not separate until they have written a new constitution for France, one that treats everyone fairly. And they swear this together in what has been known as the Tennis Court Oath. And if you want a visual, there's a painting by my all-time favorite painter of this era, Jacques-Louis David, that I'll include in the podcast notes. Again, imagine this as a movie playing in your head, that visual of the National Assembly swearing their mission to write a constitution for France in this old, run-down tennis court. It's pretty awesome stuff. Running through the history of the French Revolution, you gotta get the sense of momentum, which is an interesting way of looking at historical events, because obviously there can't be momentum attached to those things. There's no physical force acting on them. But it kind of seems that way, doesn't it? You see these social tensions, and the initial decision to call the Estate General, you can kind of see it as a ball starting to roll down a hill. And as that ball picks up more and more speed, the events in France just get crazier and crazier. Spoiler alert, a lot of those people are going to get decapitated by that ball. But the reason I'm spending so much time on this is that a lot of people argue that the ultimate destination of that ball, the bottom of the hill, is Napoleon. And one of the people that argue that is Napoleon himself. Right now, Napoleon is hearing rumors of all this stuff that's happening, but initially he's pretty dismissive of it. He thinks it'll all blow over, calm will return, and he just focuses on his military career, like we were talking about. It's one of the rare times where he is absolutely, inarguably wrong about something. And what happens next, after the tennis court oath is sworn, will make him realize that something earth-shatteringly important is happening. We'll get back to him in a bit. King Louis XVI 
surrounded by a royal family and nobles and clergymen that are all freaking out over this talk of freedom and equality, has to do something to try and slow this down, and everyone around him is blaming Necker for suggesting that they called the meeting in the first place. So Louis, at the behest of other people, like his wife, Marie Antoinette, and his royal advisors, decides to fire him. And at the same time, large groups of soldiers start to amass in both Paris and Versailles. Quick note, Versailles is where the National Assembly is meeting right now. King Louis XIV had moved the royal palace there from Paris during his reign, and almost all of the important nobles followed him, so that became the de facto political capital. But Paris is still the largest city, full of people from the Third Estate, and when they heard that Necker got fired, they just exploded into open rebellion. It was chaos in the streets. The National Assembly, from Versailles, forms what they call a bourgeoisie military force, but it quickly becomes known as the National Guard, from volunteers. They start wearing these things called coquettes, which amounts to a knotted fabric that you wear in your hat. And they wear a combination of the red and blue ones that they had for Paris and the white ones that were just lying around representing the king. And that red, white, and blue becomes a symbol of the revolution, and it's still the French flag today. They elected a young man to be commander-in-chief of this new army, and a lot of you might recognize him, especially if you're fans of Hamilton. Taking control of the new French National Guard was none other than the man himself, the Marquis de Lafayette, who played a crucial role in the American Revolution. Now the National Assembly has its own military force, and it grows super quickly. But an army needs weapons, and it needs gunpowder. So on the next day, the 14th of July, thousands of Parisian citizens take to the streets and storm towards this huge, menacing black monolith called the Bastille. Now the Bastille was a symbol of everything that people hated about the Ancien Regime. It was left over from the 14th century, and it used to serve as a medieval fortress to defend against sieges. But for the last couple centuries, it's been used as a prison. And the Bastille in Paris was just this bastion of mythic evil. Everyone had heard the legends of what happens when you get locked up in there, the horrible torture that they put you through, and the inhumanity of it all. The Bastille was a physical manifestation of the monarchy in Paris. And at this particular time, though, there aren't that many prisoners in the Bastille. I think there were only seven. But you know what they did have lots of? gunpowder. And that's what the National Guard was going for, accompanied by a massive mob of angry citizens. At 11am in the July heat, they called to the governor of the prison, demanding that he hand over the stores of gunpowder in the cellars of the Bastille. The governor refused, and a group of soldiers quickly manages to obtain entry into the prison, and the governor gives the order to his prison guards to shoot them. And that launched the mob into a frenzy and thousands of screaming French citizens armed with bayonets storm into the Bastille and take it by force. They rioted for hours, long into the afternoon, and they slaughtered every single one of the prison guards. The governor surrendered. The mob accepted his surrender and slaughtered him too. When everyone in the prison was dead, the mob wasn't done. They spent the next several months working non-stop tearing out stones and dashing things with cannonballs and dynamite until eventually they had demolished the Bastille with their bare hands. The revolution had begun. Shortly after, the leading figures of the National Assembly put out a set of decrees, known as the August Decrees, that abolished the system of feudalism, stripping nobles of most of their social privileges and tax exemptions. And they're able to do this because the king is now scared of them, because he thinks, oh man, I better give these people their way, or they're going to tear down more important buildings. And all these decrees, these August decrees, culminate in a document that becomes known and is titled The Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen. La Déclaration des droits de l'homme et du citoyen. Which, if you're a political nerd like me, you'll absolutely love. 
It was mostly written by the Marquis de Lafayette and the Abbé Sies, remember him? Uh, with a lot of consulting done by Thomas Jefferson, who was in France as an ambassador at the time. It was kind of drawing inspiration from his Declaration of Independence. The Declaration was the embodiment of Enlightenment thought, and it's truly powerful stuff. It established, for the first time ever in France, that all men were to be considered equal. Somewhat obviously, they did not include women yet, because no matter how progressive they thought they were, this was 1789. But all men have equal rights to the three revolutionary ideals. Liberté, égalité, and fraternité. Liberty, equality, and brotherhood. This was a pretty unique document at the time, too, because it was completely secular. In true Enlightenment fashion, they didn't derive their authority from God or some religious power, but from reason and logic and rationality, or so they thought. It was a beautiful work of literature, too. I highly suggest you check it out if you get the chance. One of the other watershed moments of 1789 was what became known as the Woman's March on Versailles. The momentum of the ball rolling down the hill was being felt all over France as this mass fury, a rage experienced by the whole of the Third Estate. And one of the ways this manifested was that a massive group of women from Paris banded together and took to the streets, demanding that something be done to address the rampant poverty and economic crisis in the city. They demanded to speak to city officials, but they couldn't get through to them, and they couldn't get anything done. So they decided to find someone that they knew had the power to do something. The king, Louis XVI. But the king, like I said, had moved to Versailles a couple hundred years earlier. This entire crowd of thousands and thousands of women were from Paris, and they straight up marched from Paris to Versailles, accompanied by the National Guard at the command of Lafayette. And they stormed the palace and physically kidnapped the royal family, bringing them back to Paris to be held accountable. And soon the whole country had this image in their head of the king and queen being marched back to Paris by the National Guard. Terribly embarrassing for the king, but that looks really, really good if you're the National Guard. And this gives the National Assembly a sense of legitimacy. If they can force the king to do what they want, they must be the ones in power. Back to Napoleon for a moment. Now that it was clear that it, what was going on wasn't just some minor riot, but a full-blown revolution, Napoleon was fully on board. Napoleon was pretty invested in the ideals of the Enlightenment, too, and the idea of a regime based on logic and reason was really attractive to him. It also potentially meant that whatever new system of government emerged would allow for greater independence for Corsica. Napoleon is thrilled when he realizes how big this is, so he requests leave, he calls in sick for the next, like, year, two years, and he goes back to Corsica, wrapping himself up in Corsican politics and writing up a storm, as usual. In 1790, the National Assembly declares that while Corsica would remain a part of France, it would henceforth only be governed by Corsicans, which is a really big deal if you're a Corsican nationalist like Napoleon. That sold him. But things are quickly going sour, especially since both Leopold II, Holy Roman Emperor, and Frederick William II, the King of Prussia, are both amassing their armies at the French border to show support for their fellow monarch, good old King Louis, who at this point is basically being held prisoner by the National Guard in Paris. Having two of the most powerful nations in the world at that time shut down your revolution is putting a lot of stress on the people, particularly the National Assembly, who is now kind of the de facto government. So they responded by declaring war on both Prussia and Austria before they had the chance to attack. Corsica started being overrun by riots and chaos, uh, and Napoleon made an enemy of the recently returned Pascale Paoli, who is now the ruler again. So in February 1791, Napoleon and his family return to Paris. Uh, well, Napoleon returns to his division in Paris, but he quickly sees that there's not much chance of his advancing up the military ladder there. The work is very dangerous. So he bails on that regiment and then gets himself over to Paris. And at this point, Napoleon is a fully-fledged revolutionary, 22 years old, still constantly writing philosophy and entering essay contests, though he wasn't quite good enough to ever win them. And Napoleon is starting to demonstrate one of the things that he'll be most known for. Capitalizing on opportunity. 
In most situations, if you were to desert a regiment the way he did, you'd be arrested, court-martialed, potentially even executed for treason. But as the National Assembly is passing things like the August Decrees, the nobility of France is getting freaked out, and they're also getting all their advantages, you know, kind of taken away from them. So they just start noping out of the country, and they start, you know, dipping out, going to places like Austria, Britain, and Prussia. They became known as the émigrés, because they were emigrating out, and they're going to be a headache for a long time. But this mass exodus of nobles means that all the leadership positions in the military are suddenly vacant, because that was usually one of the responsibilities of the nobility. And so the military is just in complete disarray, it's chaos everywhere, they need every hand that they can get. So when Napoleon strolls up to a military outpost and tries to get a job, instead of getting arrested, they offer them the position of captain. How lucky is that? At this point in time, France is operating as a constitutional monarchy. The king is still king, even though he's pretty much imprisoned, but his power is limited by the constitution that the National Assembly has written. As the revolution progresses, the National Assembly begins to divide a little bit, settling into factions, kind of like political parties. A bunch of people that were a little more reserved about this revolution thing kind of clustered together, and they sat on the right side of the assembly. And this wasn't one unified group, but a whole range of opinions. Some people were aristocrats, demanding that we return to the monarchy. Some people, like Necker, thought that they should continue like they're doing as a constitutional monarchy and maybe have a system like Britain. But on the whole, those that sat on the right half of the National Assembly were hesitant, worrying that maybe this revolution thing could be taken too far. A bunch of them started calling themselves the Royalist Democrats, although they would disappear pretty much immediately. And in the center-slash-left of the Assembly was another group that were a little more liberal and a little more adventurous. As again, this group was a spectrum. Lafayette, who represented the National Guard, was in it, but he was pretty reserved. He was kind of a centrist. The Abbe Sillez was the most active one, he was kind of working on the constitutions, he was passing a lot of laws and decrees, and way over on the left was a dude that everyone thought was a radical. That lawyer that we mentioned earlier, Maximilien Robespierre, delegate of the Third Estate. All these people get grouped together into the club called the Jacobin Club, the center-left, quickly becomes the dominant decision-making group in France. But it's important to note that this is where we get our division of left-wing and right-wing from. It's literally from where the people were sitting in the National Assembly either the right half of the room or the left half of the room, and the ideas that are associated with them. Now, Napoleon starts supporting the Jacobins. He's what's known as a Jacobin sympathizer. And things in France are changing at a pace that is impossible to keep up with. Every day is this whirlwind of intrigue and scandal and vast sweeping changes. At one point, the royal family tries to run away to join the other monarchs of Europe, uh, which are all either invading or preparing to invade France to try and restore King Louis to the throne, shutting down this revolution thing once and for all. Because if you see a country next to you, and their population starts to get mad and overthrow the king, that's something you don't want to succeed, right? Because what if your population does that? So the royal family in France dresses up as peasants, and they sneak out of the Parisian palace where they're being held. But unfortunately, someone recognizes them, and they get shipped right back to Paris. And the National Assembly, which has changed a little bit, is now calling itself the National Convention, hold a trial for the king, saying that he was guilty of treason against the French state. And they sentence him to death. And they guillotine him. And if you don't know what a guillotine is, your head is placed into a slot, basically, and a large blade drops down and cuts your head off. Nine months later, they guillotine Marie Antoinette, too. As if things in France were chaotic enough before, the people of France have now publicly executed their king. Stop and think about what that does to a country for a second. Imagine what would happen if this happened in your country. Maybe you have had it happen. 
getting into the history of the French Revolution like we've been doing, you get exhausted by the sheer volume of things that are happening in such a short span of time. And I know I'm throwing a ton of information at you. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in it? What would that do to you psychologically, knowing that every institution and structure around you that you've known all of your life, it might just be torn down at any time? Everything is in total chaos. One person in France is benefiting substantially from all this chaos. Someone that's fiercely intelligent and ravenously ambitious. As more and more of the ruling class of the military flee the country and become émigrés, Napoleon Bonaparte skyrockets through the hierarchy, taking full advantage of the chaos to rise through the chain of command at an unprecedented rate. At the same time that he's rising his way through the military, Maximilien Robespierre is becoming more and more influential in politics, in the Jacobin Club, which itself is kind of split into two groups. One called the Girondin, because some of them are from Girondin, the region in France, and another one that sat up very high, kind of like on the balcony of the assembly where they were meeting. And because it's all high up, it becomes known as the Mountain. And the Mountain was starting to become dominant. And the Mountain, led, of course, by Robespierre, who at this point has earned the nickname L'Incorruptible, incorruptible in his absolute dedication to freedom, liberty, and equality, is dangerously radical. And later on, one of the high-ranking members of the Girondin, a man named Dumouriez, defects to the coalition of Austria and Prussia. Robespierre is furious, and he carries out a purge of all of his political enemies. Most of the Girondins get arrested overnight, and many of them are executed immediately. Robespierre becomes head of another body called the Committee for Public Safety, which has total control of France at this point, launching the country into what we now call the Reign of Terror. The Reign of Terror was not a good time for France. Between June 1793 and July 1794, when it ended, remember this is all moving ridiculously quickly, 300,000 people were arrested, 17,000 of them were executed by guillotine, and maybe 10,000 of those people were killed without any semblance of a trial. And just know as I'm saying all of this that I'm not even scratching the surface of all the stuff that's going on in revolutionary France. This is the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. You could literally dedicate an entire multi-season podcast to this period. I'm just trying to get the important stuff out there because it's crucial to understand before we get to the really exciting stuff with Napoleon. So I can already hear all the French Revolution fans in the audience getting mad at me saying, what about this? Or, you know, you've simplified this too far. You're correct. Again, I'm not a historian. I'm doing my best to relay a treasure trove of information in less than an hour and... No matter how hard I try to do it justice, it's just not going to happen. So if you're interested in the French Revolution and getting a really, really concrete understanding after this podcast, and you want to know more, go read about it. It's fascinating. That was a social, political situation that pushes the boundaries of extreme human experiences. We'll likely never see something like it again. It was totally crazy. Okay, so we're in the reign of terror under Robespierre, who's become a ruthless dictator. Now we actually get to talk about Napoleon a little bit. Napoleon is still rising through the ranks, and around this time, he's still a Jacobin sympathizer. He's actually getting pretty tight with Robespierre's brother, Augustine. He lands his first major position, thanks to his connections to Augustine and another dude named Salicetti that he was friends with back in Corsica. He was made the commander of the artillery of the Army of the South, under a dude named General Jean-Francois Carteau. A medium-sized force of Spanish and Neapolitan troops had occupied the port in a town called Toulon, and seized Fort Mulgrave an important strategic stronghold that overlooked the bay. Now, remember how all the emigres were leaving and that kind of resulted in a lot of leadership positions being occupied by people that normally wouldn't have them? That was great for Napoleon because he was ridiculously capable. But when you're rolling the dice on leadership like that, you don't always get a Napoleon. Sometimes you get a Carteau. Carteau was not born to be a commander. He was actually a painter by trade and pretty much everyone around him. Well, he was some variation of the phrase, utterly incapable. 
They sit out for too long, and Courtois has literally no plan. They were headed straight for total disaster, so it was Napoleon's time to shine. Step one was to siege Fort Mulgrave, or else they would never have any success with the port. Napoleon got to his post and proceeded to micromanage the shit out of the entire operation. He literally wrote hundreds of letters dictating the specific details of every single aspect of the siege. He requisitioned horses from other cities. He set the price and the amount of rations that his soldiers would receive. He ordered that a foundry be built nearby to supply his artillery squad with cannonballs. Napoleon was just this explosion of fervent energy, constantly writing and running around and organizing things with a clarity rarely seen in the ranks of history. Literally everything you could think of and a dozen things you didn't think of, Napoleon made all these decisions with lightning speed and ruthless efficiency. Higher-ups in France realized that Carteau had no clue what he was doing, and they replaced him with another guy who loved what Napoleon was doing. But during one of the earlier skirmishes, that dude called a retreat too early, which was a strategic blunder that Napoleon was furious about. Napoleon, still whirlwinding around at the speed of sound, wrote to Salicetti and Augustin, and that guy was quickly replaced too, landing eventually on a guy named General Jacques de Gomier, who Napoleon approved of. De Gomier approved Napoleon's plan, and it was time for the attack. At three o'clock in the morning, in the midst of a cacophonous storm, thunder crashing and lightning illuminating the hilly terrain, Napoleon's regiment set out, cannons, horses, and bayonets at the ready. Napoleon led the charge himself. And it's worth noting that the commanders of these types of armies were not always protected. They didn't just sit at the back and give orders. Napoleon himself was out there on the front lines, firing cannons and engaging in combat himself. He demonstrated incredible physical bravery. He even got stabbed by an enemy soldier, caused by surprise with the late night attack. His courage was contagious. On display here is one of the many skills that Napoleon had become widely known for. He had an incredible understanding of what some have called battlefield psychology. He knew exactly what the average person was thinking in the middle of a war and knew exactly what to say to motivate them. The siege didn't last very long. They took the fort by shock and awe in close combat and quickly established a dominant strategic position inside. And from the top of Fort Mulgrave, overlooking the port, Napoleon and his men poured molten cannonballs into the Spanish ships at the dock, setting them alight in a torrent of fire. Napoleon himself wrote later, recollecting the event, quote, The whirlwind of flames and smoke from the arsenal resembled the eruption of a volcano. End quote. The remainder of the Spanish and Neapolitan forces fled shortly after. The siege of Toulon was a stunning success, and it was all thanks to Napoleon. Toulon gave him confidence in himself and upon returning to Paris, he was promoted to general and made artillery commander of the Army of Italy. He was 24 years old and had less than four years of active service in the military, but he was starting to make a name for himself. But the social landscape in revolutionary France was constantly shifting, and it was about to transform once again. Robespierre and the Committee for Public Safety are ruling France with an iron fist. It was the personal opinion of Robespierre that they had to resort to terror to keep the revolution going. And there was basically a radical terrorist faction running France. It's no wonder over 300,000 people got imprisoned and about 40,000 got killed. Not only is Robespierre executing people left and right, he's passing some drastic reforms too. They were the first nation to start using the metric system as a more rational system of measurement. As a rebellion against the Catholic Church, they changed the whole calendar system to a secular one, where months were named after the period of the year. It was the foggy month, the freezing month, etc. Robespierre himself was especially interested in developing a new rational religion, which is kind of an oxymoron, called the Cult of the Supreme Being, that was specifically designed to topple Christianity. Spoiler alert, it didn't quite work. 
As the reign of terror went on, it became more and more extreme. More and more people were being executed every day, until eventually the people had had enough. There was profound public resentment for the tyrannical Robespierre. Many people thought that he was just going too far. On the ninth day of Thermidor, the hot summer month, there was a military coup for members of the National Convention, who arrested Robespierre, the Committee for Public Safety, and the Mountain, and executed them all in one fell swoop, abruptly bringing to an end the reign of terror. History has called this event the Thermidorian Reaction. Suddenly, being connected to Robespierre meant trouble. Luckily for Napoleon, he was off on a mission for Augustin, and wasn't in the immediate line of fire when the Thermidorian Reaction went down. When he returned, he was immediately jailed, which is actually a nice change of pace, because if the Jacobins were still in power, he would have been executed immediately. Uh, he didn't spend a ton of time in jail, though, and it was released pretty shortly afterwards. He lost his position with the Army of Italy, but don't worry, Napoleon is far from done with Italy. He was offered another position, but he declined it, seeing it as a dead end. So he ended up just chilling in Paris for a little bit, writing pamphlets and letters and continuing to develop his intellect, waiting for an opportunity. The year is now 1795, and the new Girondin government needs a new constitution to differentiate themselves from the terror of the Jacobins. So they, accompanied by C.S., who is still near the head of things, write the constitution of the year three. Remember, Robespierre just restarted the calendar, so it was now the year three. And the Constitution of the Year 3 established a new governing body after the dissolution of the Committee for Public Safety. It was called the Directory, made up of the five most powerful men in France. Unfortunately, it was still 100% men. The new directors switched a couple things up to try and calm the people down, and they put a man named Paul Barat in charge of the Army of the Interior, a military force that was designating for putting down the various rebellions and civil wars raging around France. Barat had seen what Napoleon could do at Toulon, and was very impressed. He was beyond impressed, so we tracked him down and recruited him to become second in command. While Napoleon had seen some limited military action, he had never experienced the type of high-level national politics he was about to get into. Napoleon joined the Army of the Interior in the middle of a huge crisis. A huge force of royalist sympathizers, led by the noble Count d'Artois, was initiated a huge riot in the Vendée that threatened to escalate into a full-blown civil war. Some were arguing that it already was a civil war. There were around 25,000 royalists on the streets, and Napoleon had been thrust into command of these improvised defenses with pretty much no time to plan. He remained calm and sent one of his aides, a man named Murat, who had served him for a long time, to go fetch some large, powerful cannons that were several kilometers away. Barat was absent at this time, so it was basically Napoleon running the show. He strategically held the line with his men until the cannons returned, and when they did, Napoleon ordered his men to load the cannons with grape shot basically small clusters of tiny cannonballs. In doing this, Napoleon basically turned these cannons into shotguns, and when he fired, it absolutely devastated the rioters. But it wasn't just the rioters. Napoleon fired these guns into a civilian population. Hundreds of innocent people were killed. In response to the massacre, because this battle was held on 13 Vendemir, the month of the Great Harvest, the royalists started calling Napoleon General Vendemir. He later said it was his first title of victory. Before the end of the month, Napoleon was starting to become famous. After Vendemir, Napoleon was made commander of the Army of the Interior, instead of Barat. At Vendemir, he had saved the revolution, or so people thought. Vendemir earned him fame, money, and something even more important, the respect and gratitude of the Directory, the new governing body. 
Napoleon stays busy for a little while, doing similar types of things, cleaning up any royalist rebellions that pop up, that type of thing. The Directory has seen how many rulers and governing bodies France has gone through in the past couple of months. There's been like four or five different types of government, and they're fully aware of how precarious their position is. So they start taking some measures to secure their power. And a lot of the time they're using Napoleon to carry these things out. They started censoring the opera houses to make sure there wasn't any criticism of the new republic. And another thing they put Napoleon in charge of was disarming the civilian population, confiscating any weaponry that they might have. And it's in the course of this particular job that Napoleon meets a woman that will become very important in his life. Her name is Josephine. Until very recently, Josephine had been in prison. Now these prisons in France were horrific. You're in a cold underground cell made of stone, there are bloodstains everywhere, and all you can hear are the screams of people that are getting dragged off to the guillotine. There were some other screams, too. The Committee for Public Safety, radical as they were, refused to guillotine pregnant women. So there were a lot of women in the prison, which was called the Carnes, that were trying pretty desperately to buy themselves a little extra nine months. Josephine was in the prison because her husband, who was an older, very physically abusive man, had been a political enemy of the Jacobins. He was one of the thousands of men who were guillotined for being critical of the revolution. Luckily, Josephine hadn't been selected for execution, and when the Thermidorian reaction occurred, she was one of the many people who were freed by the new Girondin government. Funnily enough, she actually probably got out of prison at almost exactly the same time that Napoleon went in. On her way out, she was suddenly single, and pretty desperate to find some sort of safety and connection in the turbulence of this revolutionary era. So she started hooking up with basically every powerful man she could get her hands on, trying to sink some roots in to make sure that she would be taken care of. One of those men was actually Paul Berat, the man who gave Napoleon his job at Vandemere. That went on for a little while, but it didn't really last with Berat, um, so Josephine went back to live with her family, and a few months later, a military official informed her that her family was obligated to give up any and all weaponry that they had. So said the Directory. And that created a bit of a dispute with Josephine's household, because they had an ancestral sword that they kept on display that had been in the family for generations and generations. So Josephine and her little brother went to the guy in charge to ask if maybe they could make an exception. And remember who the guy in charge of this particular operation was? That's right, it's our man Napoleon. And Napoleon, upon seeing Josephine, was smitten. Immediately upon meeting her, he decided that he was in love with her, and he started writing her near-constant romantic letters, imploring her to marry him. It was love at first sight for him. Josephine was less than impressed. In fact, all historical records suggest that she was found him intolerably annoying for a very long time after they met. But Josephine knew that she wasn't getting any younger. She was 33 to Napoleon's 27, and she desperately needed to find some security in the uncertain times of the revolution. Napoleon is, like, creepily obsessed with her, though. After one of their first affairs, Napoleon sent a letter that read, I awake full of you. Your image and the memory of last night's intoxicating pleasures has left no rest to my senses. Literally every day, even several times a day, this kind of stuff was delivered to Josephine. And remember how Napoleon didn't really play with other kids when he was young? He just kind of, like, read old books? Napoleon isn't exactly slick. He had some stunning lines when he was trying to woo Josephine, like, How many children have you had? And did you breastfeed them yourself? So, of course, they got married in March 1796, or year four, if you're going by the revolutionary calendar. None of Napoleon's family was particularly thrilled that Napoleon was choosing to marry an older woman with two kids from a criminal marriage, but you can't choose who you love, right? When they got married, Napoleon added two years to his age, and Josephine subtracted four, and they were good to go. They were both 28. And it was at this time that Napoleon legally changed his name. Technically, up until this point, his name was Napoleone de Bonaparte, uh, but he wanted to sound more French, so he changed his name to Napoleon Bonaparte at the ceremony. 
Take note of Napoleon's absolute lack of hesitation to completely change important details in order to make himself look better, because that's going to be a thing going forwards. But hey, Napoleon's doing pretty well for himself right now. He managed to survive the reign of terror, he's getting kind of famous, he's got a sweet gig with the army, he's making bank, he's just got married to the girl of his dreams, and he's sort of got the favor of the directory. For now. There is no time for a honeymoon for Napoleon and Josephine. On March 2nd, the directory, which now includes Barat, gave Napoleon a wedding present, the best one he could ask for. They put him again in command of the army of Italy, this time at the top. Whether this was based on merit or political maneuvering behind the scenes is unclear, but Barat and Josephine were still close at the time, take from that what you will. Barat was quoted by many of his colleagues as saying this, quote, Advance this man or he will advance himself without you. End quote. It appears Napoleon's actions on 13 Vendemia raised his stock. This was another step up on the ladder on Napoleon's meteoric rise to the top. The army of Italy wasn't the main attraction of the French military at the time. All the best armies were in Germany, under the command of the best generals, Jourdan, Joubert, and Moreau. But Napoleon was still thrilled. He asked the army registry for every book they had on Italy and all the battles that had been fought there, biographies of commanders, everything. And for the nine days before he set out, he tore through volumes of material, meticulously interviewing everyone that had experience in the area to make sure he was as prepared as he could possibly be. One of the many things that struck the people around him was how willing he was to admit that he didn't know something. Most commanders would hide their ignorance of a topic, sometimes to disastrous result, trying not to show weakness, but not Napoleon. He urged experts to speak, listened respectfully, and took their advice into account. This army knew him, too. It was just two years ago that he had commanded many of them at the Siege of Toulon. They had either heard of him or seen him in action, and some of them definitely respected him. But because all the best armies were in Germany, this one was criminally underfunded. The budget for the campaign was less than Napoleon's annual salary. Before his arrival, the army was in complete disarray. The soldiers lacked jackets, bayonets, some of them didn't even have shoes, and many of them had gone without pay for months. There was even some talk of mutiny. It was just a miserable experience for everyone. When Napoleon arrives to greet his army in Italy, he once again explodes into action, similar to how he did at Toulon, which will be how he does things going forwards. He writes to the directory, demanding more money to take care of his men. He took out several loans, and he immediately disbanded and dismissed a whole battalion just because they were talking about abandoning the campaign. The arrival of a young, energetic, charismatic commander perked the troops up a little bit, pulled them out of their lethargy, but there was a lot of work to do. Shortly after arriving in Italy, Napoleon takes on a chief of staff by the name of Alexander Berthier. Berthier was an older dude who remained Napoleon's chief of staff all the way until 1814. He had served in the American Revolutionary War, and many people consider him to be the first modern chief of staff in history. Rather, Napoleon was the first modern leader to take on a chief of staff in this way. Berthier was incredibly efficient, had a ridiculously good memory, almost as good as Napoleon himself, and was incredibly skilled at diplomacy. He was so skilled, in fact, kind of the popular legend about him was that he convinced his wife to share a room with his mistress. That takes some diplomacy. Napoleon and Berthier quickly managed to build a military machine with unparalleled efficiency. Napoleon's grand strategy and general orders would be translated into Berthier's incredibly precise, specific directions for his men. This partnership is going to persist for a long-ass time, and it is a match made in heaven. The two men were close for super long as well. Napoleon was thrilled to have a peer that could keep up with him. After reading some battlefield positioning notes that Berthier had published, Napoleon wrote in a letter, quote, I read these position statements with as much relish as reading a good novel. End quote. Bromance initiate. Napoleon spent a lot of his time writing these letters in a frenzy of activity. Many of them were to Josephine back home, all of the same type that we mentioned earlier. 
It was literally constant love letters with this guy. So Josephine, you know, when Napoleon left, immediately started hooking up with this dude named Hippoly Charles. She very rarely wrote Napoleon back, and when she did, she referred to him as Vu. And it's not immediately obvious to an English speaker why that's such a savage thing to do, but basically she's referring to him as someone that is unfamiliar, in a very formal way. Napoleon was honestly devastated. He sent hundreds and hundreds of letters to Josephine over the course of his Italian campaign, and not many of them got responses. It seems like he would be crushed, and he was. But one of his most important skills was his superhuman ability to compartmentalize his own thoughts. Napoleon described it as opening and closing drawers in his mind. When he was worried about Josephine and writing her letters, that was all he was thinking about. But as soon as he was done, he would close the Josephine drawer, and suddenly all of his thoughts of Josephine were gone from his mind. He was totally focused on the task at hand. And when he opened the war drawer, nobody could stop him. Napoleon and the Army of Italy were one of several forces involved in the War of the First Coalition, a conflict that started a couple years earlier in 1792, when the other European monarchs were getting nervous when they were watching this revolution thing. The First Coalition, so-called because, spoiler alert, there are going to be a lot of coalitions that try to defeat France, is made up of mostly the Holy Roman Empire, which, as Voltaire said, was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, but don't really worry about that for right now. They were made up of England, of Prussia, Spain, and a couple other European states that aren't quite as important. Where Napoleon was in Italy, he was mostly fighting the Austrian forces of the Habsburgs, the rulers of the Holy Roman Empire, and he started off with a bang. His first conflict was a huge success. His forces defeated a much larger Austrian army with minimal casualties. Part of this was due to the state of the opposing army. Their commander was very, very old, and had some success in the previously mentioned Seven Years' War, but wasn't exactly on the forefront of military strategy. The Austrian army also suffered a lot from one of the main weaknesses of the Holy Roman Empire. It was linguistically hella diverse, which led to a lot of disorganization and confusion when dispensing orders, as there were four or five languages being spoken between them. Contrast this with Napoleon's ruthless organization and infinite energy. The Austrians had no chance. The battle was won easily, but Napoleon didn't stop there. While some commanders would rest on their laurels, he didn't slow down one bit, and he challenged another Austrian army nearby, and another. And he ended up winning three stunning victories in the space of three days. Napoleon had arrived in Italy. There was something truly special about the way Napoleon commanded his men. He joked with them, teased them, but he never failed to always demand the best from them. It was common practice for armies to loot and pillage the towns and armies that they stormed through, especially when the army was in the state as bad as the army of Italy it was in. It's not an exaggeration to say that Napoleon's army at that stage was the least funded, most neglected one of all of France's 13 main armies. But Napoleon refused to let his army loot and pillage. He tried to hold himself to a higher moral standard than that. It was difficult, but Napoleon didn't let that slow him down. Either by design or necessity, he restructured his army so that it would favor speed. And his forces swept through the region like lightning. The talk of mutiny was gone. The men were held in the thrall of Napoleon's unbreakable spirit. Napoleon was just the commander of the army. But as he continued sweeping through Italy, winning battles left and right, he overstepped his boundaries a little bit and started negotiating his own peace treaties and armistices within the defeated Italian forces. The directory might have shut this down. A general acting on his own like that has the potential to become a dangerous threat. But they couldn't. They were totally broke, on the verge of being bankrupt, and Napoleon was bringing in millions and millions of dollars of gold from the cities that he was defeating. They were dependent on every victory that he had, so they gritted their teeth and just accepted the money. If Napoleon knew he had potential before, now he realized that he could really become something great. Letters that survived tell us that he felt, quote, the first spark of high ambition, end quote. And he was just getting started.
Like we mentioned before though, Napoleon also just straight up lied a lot in the battle reports that he sent back to the Directory. He would often exaggerate the margins of victory, sometimes barely even trying to cover it up. We still have some of those battle reports, and he literally just crossed out 700 fatalities and wrote 100, saying that he lost 600 fewer men than he actually did. And it's not like he needed to. What he was doing was impressive enough, you know, storming undefeated through Italy with a ragtag, underpaid army in need of a shower. But he's going to keep doing this, and it's intentional. He was a massive success, but Napoleon's ambition needed more. He needed to be legendary. And things are going in that direction. The other generals in this war of the First Coalition aren't performing nearly as well as Napoleon was, and as such, the attention of the public started to concentrate almost completely on him. And this makes the Directory very nervous, as I'm sure you can understand. Seeing Napoleon get more and more popular among the people, Barat ordered him to split the army of Italy, which is now starting to get some reinforcements and is actually looking pretty nice. Barat ordered him to split it in half, effectively splitting the success and attention between two commanders, making it much more manageable. But Napoleon refused, threatening to resign if the order was enforced, and so Barat was forced to take it back. Napoleon showed the directory the respect he was obligated to, but man, he was really starting to hate their guts. The Italian campaign was going so well that by the time Napoleon's army entered Milan, they had basically surrendered. Milan in 1796 was a state of the Austrian Holy Roman Empire, and they had been since the War of the Spanish Succession, which itself is fascinating, and I'm sure we'll cover some of it in future episodes. But the people of Milan hated the Austrians. They hated them so much that when Napoleon rode into the city, the people cheered and welcomed him as a liberator. Some were even really thrilled at the thought of what the French Revolutionary slash Enlightenment thought could bring to an Italian society. There wasn't any conflict. When Napoleon was there, he stayed at the Palazzo Sebaloni, which is a beautiful building. I'll put an image down in the podcast notes. And while Napoleon was there, he brought in people from every corner of Milanese society so he could learn from them. He brought in writers, scientists, artists, aristocrats, and just reveled in the Italian culture, loving every second of it, holding long discussions, asking them questions and such. This is a really interesting thing for a commander to do. Not many of them would be interested in such things. But Napoleon was, and he made an impression. When he was speaking to these people, you know, aristocrats and such, he sowed the seeds for Italian unification. Remember, at this point, Italy isn't one thing, one country, but a collection of city-states, Milan, Genoa, that are mostly independent. And Napoleon is just chilling in this palace, learning and discussing, and he has to decide what to do with this new city-state that has given him no resistance. And what he decides to do is to establish a new independent republic, completely overhauling the existing state, liberating them from Austrian rule. It was called the Lombardic Republic. Napoleon abolished all semblance of Austrian rule and mandated that from then on, Milan could only be ruled by people from Milan, people from Italy. Something likely influenced by the Corsican nationalism and desire for self-determinism from his youth. He completely reformed the university system to be more educational and more efficient. He reformed the National Guard to be more effective. And he transferred all the power when he was done to a guy that was in favor of unification to bring Italy into one country. And then Napoleon just dipped out. But before he left, he put into place a series of reforms that he would repeat several times as he moved throughout Europe. You could see it as Napoleon's signature political power move. He completely reformed the economic system, eliminating internal tariffs to stimulate trade, restructured the old school financial systems to bring down the deficit, abolished the guild system, which basically let everyone get into any trade without uh, having to obtain membership to some restrictive guild. And he also abolished all privileges for the nobility, in essence making everyone equal in the eyes of the law not to mention the tax system. In essence, Napoleon built and modernized an Italian state from scratch and bringing to life the ideals of the Enlightenment. 
Then he took a contribution of 20 million francs and sent them back to the directory to say sorry for inventing a new nation without their permission. Yeah, Napoleon is going to be a problem for the directory. The reforms that Napoleon passed throughout Italy and other places in Europe were pretty much universally praised, even by people that hated Napoleon personally. But it's important to note that not everyone hailed Napoleon as a hero. There was a protest, singular, against the new republic, the Lombardic Republic, that threatened to grow, even though the reforms were ridiculously popular. And while he never sought it out, Napoleon was not afraid of a little brutality. Those rioters very suddenly and very violently ceased to be a problem. Oh, and all that business in Italy that we just talked about? That took less than a month. And by the time we get to May 1796, Napoleon is in utter despair. Why? He's having unprecedented success. Why is he, just a few weeks later, overcome with sorrow? His girl Josephine still won't respond to his letters. Napoleon had wanted to bring her along on the campaign, but she had refused. And when Napoleon asked why, Josephine panicked and said that she was pregnant. Spoiler alert, she was not actually pregnant. She was just banging Hippolyte Charles a whole bunch. But now Napoleon is writing her every day, asking all about, oh, how's your pregnancy going, and talking about how excited he is to be a father, but she just won't respond to him, goddammit. And a little later, he would write, you, to whom nature has given spirits, sweetness, and beauty, you alone who can move and rule my heart, you who know all too well the absolute empire you exercise over it, end quote. It said he had a photo of her that he carried in his pocket, and frequently throughout the day, he would take it out and plant kisses on it. She probably never looked at her picture of him. Anywho, closing the Josephine drawer, Napoleon is burning through Austrian armies like a hot knife through butter. Maybe part of the reason for that is that they keep putting, like, octogenarians in charge. Several of the commanders that Napoleon faced in battle were veterans of the Seven Years' War, like I mentioned, which ended six years before Napoleon was born. The Directory thought it would be a good idea to send Napoleon some strategic advice, and Napoleon thought it would be a good idea to ignore it, because in his opinion, their strategic advice sucked. And eventually, the unthinkable happens. Josephine comes to visit him, and she brings some friends. She brought Joseph, and he and Napoleon have an awesome little bro reunion, and hey, it turns out Joseph is pretty good at diplomacy, so he helps him out with a lot of the armistices that he's negotiating. And he tells Napoleon all about the new developments in the family, his little brother Lucien, and how he's doing. It's just an all-around good time. Unfortunately, Josephine also brought someone else, none other than one Hippolyte Charles, which would have been awkward if Napoleon had any idea what was going on. But nah, he was just happy to see his girl. With every victory he won, Napoleon's reputation back in France only grew, and the Directory was getting more and more worried about him. But what's really interesting to me is Napoleon's relationship with his army, which is really unique for a commander. He made himself very approachable, and actually seemed to really like spending time with his men. He ribbed them and made fun of the ones that lagged behind, but he rewarded the ones that put in effort and showed competence. And it's hard to really understand what an impact this had on his success, because you can't really measure that. You can't measure battlefield camaraderie, but it was absolutely a factor. Napoleon extracted every ounce of potential from every one of his men. In short, in his Italian campaign, Napoleon was already demonstrating that he was among the most gifted leaders in human history. And he was still working his way up. At the beginning of the campaign, Napoleon was not allowed to negotiate peace treaties on his own. At the end, he had successfully conquered and signed peace treaties with Rome, Naples, and Venice, had an armistice with the Austrian Empire, established several new independent republics, and collected hundreds of millions of francs. It was time to go home. But first, there's another important character to meet. On July 17th, 1797, a man named Charles Maurice de Talleyrand becomes the foreign minister of France. 
He's been a busy guy for a while now. He served in the regime under Louis the Sixteenth, and he contributed to the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen with Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson. And they've continued to be very busy for a very long time. Upon getting the most of foreign minister, which he was very well suited for as he was an astoundingly good diplomat, Talleyrand immediately reaches out to Napoleon, who he could already tell was going to be the most important man in France. He can't have known how important, but Talleyrand was an intelligent guy, and he wanted to get into Napoleon's circle while he was on the way up. He wrote him a letter telling him how impressive his victories in Italy were, and some of what he was working on back home in Paris. Napoleon responded immediately, and very quickly the men came to admire each other. They had a really good blossoming romance going on as well. I'm sure it'll stay that way and there will be no betrayal whatsoever. But now Napoleon has just signed his last peace treaty, and it's home sweet home, baby. Upon his return to Paris, he's greeted with a massive throng of people cheering his name and celebrating him as a hero of France. He attended a Freemason dinner as the guest of honor shortly after returning. Take from that what you will. But Napoleon was in a bit of an awkward spot. What was he going to do now? He was too young to be a director, the minimum age was 40, and while he didn't love them, he certainly didn't really want to piss them off either. The directory gave him a public return ceremony, and while the people were euphoric, the directory was... one might say they were frosty. He was made a member of the Institut de France, a society for intellectuals, and was actually super, super proud of this. They were happy to have a general in their midst, but Napoleon was actually something of an intellectual in his own right, and some of the most famous people in Europe were starting to greatly admire him. People like Goethe, Lord Byron, and Beethoven, though Beethoven's opinion will change later. With Italy conquered, Napoleon started planning his next move, and he decided that the next greatest threat to the French state was none other than their mortal historical enemy, England. The Royal Navy of England might have been the most powerful thing in the world at that point. Turns out when you're a small island nation separated from the Gangshou called medieval Europe, you get really, really good at making ships. Talleyrand, in his new position of power, gets his bro Napoleon command of the army of England, and Napoleon immediately starts doing his trademark preparation, but very quickly runs up against the unfortunate fact that there is literally zero chance that France's navy can compete with England's navy at this stage. Instead, he suggested that the French armies focus their attention elsewhere. Maybe they could disrupt England's eastern trade routes to try and weaken them a little bit, you know, softening them up before the big fight. And the directory agreed and gave him leave for a full-scale invasion of Egypt. And Napoleon, I can only imagine he squealed, because going to conquer Egypt meant he got to walk in the footsteps of his idols, Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, both of whom will have episodes fairly shortly. Either Napoleon would fail and lose his cult-like following, or he would succeed and take Egypt for France. Either way, it got him out of their hair for a little bit. Napoleon did as usual, he read some books, interviewed a couple people familiar with the area, and he was off. I don't think the directory realized how much danger they were in. France had been considering a military expedition against Egypt for decades, not just to disrupt British trade routes, but also to contain the other threat of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans had conquered Egypt in 1517, when they were absolutely crushing it in terms of imperial expansion under Suleiman the Magnificent. But while the Ottomans technically held rule over the country, on the ground, the people Napoleon and the army of Egypt will be dealing with are the Mamluks, a Georgian warrior caste. And power in the Mamluk community was held by 24 warrior princes. The Mamluks were not super powerful, mostly because they extracted ridiculously high taxes from the Egyptian people, but also because the Egyptians were resistant, at least a little bit, to any ruler that wasn't Egyptian. They were seen as foreigners. This desire for national self-determination pops up in a lot of different places. It's a very real thing. But when Napoleon was planning this operation, it seems like the Directory was setting him up to fail. And from what we know about the relationship between that and Napoleon, it's not hard to see why. 
Napoleon was given command of the new army of Egypt in early March 1798, and they set sail early May. They gave Napoleon, Berthier, and a couple others only 11 weeks to organize and equip the entire expedition. But this was completed with time to spare, and Napoleon ended up watching eight lectures on science at the Institute and just kind of doing other stuff for a little while. The Directory gave him six months to capture Egypt, and literally zero money. Napoleon just extracted it from the contributions he was earning from Italy and financed it himself. It's hard to overstate just how hyped Napoleon was to go to Egypt. Like I mentioned earlier, all of his idols from history had undergone military action in Egypt, and now it was his turn to follow in their footsteps. But he didn't just want this to be a simple military conquest. He also wanted it to be a scientific and cultural expedition. In addition to his soldiers, he brought on hundreds of geographers, chemists, botanists, historians, astronomers, zoologists, painters, a huge collection of geniuses that became known as the savants. The final fleet was colossal, the largest one that had ever sailed the Mediterranean Sea. But Napoleon, for all of his virtues, was not much of a sailor. As they were getting ready to set sail, he said something along the lines of, prepare a good bed, I'm going to be hella sick the entire time. But the actual voyage across the Mediterranean sounded awesome. Napoleon got the savants to give lectures every day about whatever their particular field of study was. The soldiers spent their time practicing and reading novels. Sounds like this Egyptian campaign is going to go really, really well. But before they got to Egypt, though, they had to make a stop at a very important island, directly south of Italy, called Malta. Malta was a key point in the geopolitics of the Mediterranean. For a few hundred years, it had been under the control of a bunch of crusader knights called the Order of the St. John and it was their purpose to defend Europe from the threat of the Ottoman Empire. They had actually successfully withstood a siege against the might of almost the entire Ottoman Empire at its height, under Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent. Malta was one of the most defendable territories in the world, but lately the Ottomans weren't quite as big of a threat as they used to be, and the Order of St. John was becoming less and less relevant. When the French fleet arrived at Malta, the order was overwhelmed. There was initially some resistance, but it soon became clear that the island stood no chance against the titanic French force, and they surrendered. Napoleon came to stay on the island, and over the course of the next six days, he pulled off his most radical reformation yet. While he was there, he replaced the archaic knights with a functioning government, arranged that all the streets be lit and all the roads be paved. He freed all the political prisoners, overhauled the entire hospital system, postal service, and the university networks of the island, which at this point had not taught science. Napoleon was having none of that. He did all of that in six days, but he didn't stop there. Two days after he set sail, he wrote 14 letters that essentially dictated exactly how the island was to be run in the future, including detailed plans for the organization of their military, their navy, their judiciary, a new system of more efficient taxation, the abolition of slavery, the abolition of feudalism and noble titles, full religious toleration too, including the building of a synagogue. He built a detailed functioning state from scratch at the point of his pen when he was miles away on a boat sending a message to the directory that France, quote, now possess the strongest place in Europe, and it will take a great deal to dislodge us, end quote. Spoiler alert, it will actually not take that great of a deal to dislodge them, but that's the type of man we're talking about. Most people in history would list that as a lifetime achievement, worthy of inclusion in the history books, and it was a pit stop on the way to Napoleon's real objective. Even if Malta would later defect to the British, who undid most of his work, there's no denying the competency of Napoleon Bonaparte. But he wasn't perfect, and we're going to see one of his biggest failures ahead of us in Egypt. Napoleon had done his research, as usual, and was very cautious as they got closer and closer to the destination. He gave his men general orders to regulate their behavior once they landed. The plan was to topple the Mamluks and disarm the civilian population, but to do it respectfully. 
Once again, there was to be no raping or pillaging, common practice for invading armies at the time. Addressing his soldiers, Napoleon was especially insistent that they treat the religion of the locals with as much respect as he did their own. He didn't want to give them any reason for a jihad. Other invasions of the region may have been less destructive if they had studied the culture to the extent that Napoleon did. On July 1st, 1798, the French army of Egypt landed in the port of Alexandria, the second largest city in Egypt, and one of the most fascinating cities in world history. It held special significance to Napoleon, as the city itself was founded over 2,000 years ago by Alexander the Great, as he conquered the known world, and was the cultural-slash-intellectual capital of the Mediterranean for a ridiculously long time. Now it was Napoleon's turn to follow in the footsteps of his heroes, and he started off with immediate success. Napoleon had learned from other historical commanders, like Cyrus the Great, of the utility of invoking local religious figures. He went around fighting the Mamluks and giving speeches to the people, making sure to mention how he had defeated the Italian Pope in battle back in Italy, stirring emotions among Egyptians that were associated with the Crusades. He spoke of his respect for the religion of Islam, and later on he would actually joke that he came very, very close to converting to Islam, but not as close as one of his captains, who actually changed his middle name to Al-Hassad. And some analysis actually revealed that he actually subtly imitated the rhythm and tone of the Quran when he was giving his speeches building some subliminal camaraderie with the audience. Whether this was intentional or not is unclear, but you're starting to get an idea of the type of person Napoleon was. Would you put it past him? At the same time, the savants are carrying out an incredible amount of research into Egypt. They discovered the Rosetta Stone, which basically kick-started the whole field of Egyptology. Napoleon established the Institut d'Egypte, which remained the greatest center for scientific research and learning in Egypt until it was burned down in the Arab Spring of 2011. Napoleon was pretty successful in Alexandria right out of the gate, but as soon as he moved on, things immediately started to go south. The army of Egypt has the honor of being the first modern western army to ever cross a big desert, and it was almost comically miserable. The men were constantly blinded by sandstorms, eaten alive by scorpions and mosquitoes, sunburnt, suffering from heat stroke, and all that was before they started getting routinely attacked from all directions by Mamluk forces on horseback. These forces, though, intimidating as they were, just couldn't stand up to French artillery, and were quickly crushed. But then, something very tragic happens. Junot, a young general that Napoleon was very fond of, informs him that Josephine has been cheating on him, basically ever since they met. And Napoleon was crushed. Even worse, the British were actively trying to indirectly sabotage Napoleon, and a British naval force captured a letter that Napoleon wrote about this whole incident, and published it widely, making the adultery widely known in France. This was a major problem. Napoleon's looking hella weak. From this point on, Napoleon stopped writing her letters. The next surviving one is from 1800. And potentially as revenge, but more likely just as an effort to regain his image, Napoleon has an affair of his own, with a beautiful woman by the name of Pauline. Napoleon saw her and was immediately attracted to her. Unfortunately for him, she was there accompanying her husband, who was a soldier in Napoleon's army. But not to be deterred, Napoleon decided to just ship her husband back to France, with the thin excuse of making him the messenger to the directory. And after he left, Napoleon started courting her to almost immediate success, and she began to be his lover in a very public way. She stayed with him at his quarters in Old Palace, and was referred to by many as his Cleopatra. Months passed with mixed success for the army of Egypt. The cultural differences make conquering Egypt much more difficult than conquering Italy. The people are restless, they don't really like French rule, and they rebel pretty often. Napoleon had tried to pass his usual set of reforms in Cairo, which at this point is easily the largest city in Africa, but he has a lot less success than usual. And Napoleon's main nemesis of the Egyptian campaign, the villain of the Egyptian campaign as far as there is one, 
is a local warlord allied with the Ottomans by the name of Ahmad Pasha al-Jazar. And the al-Jazar at the end of his name is an epithet he earned, which translates to, in English, the Butcher, which is not terribly encouraging if you're Napoleon trying to conduct diplomacy with this guy. Remember that the Directory has only given Napoleon six months to conquer Egypt, and Napoleon at this point has expanded into much of Syria, too. It's now been much more than six months, and the army of Egypt is in a bit of a deadlock. Napoleon's plan was to move through Egypt as quickly as he did Italy, and then move on to Syria and India as well, creating an eastern empire all his own. It's becoming clearer and clearer, though, that that's just not going to happen. His men are still struggling in the desert heat, the people are resisting him, and his attempts at further expansion are being halted by the Butcher in Acre, which Napoleon had attempted to siege and failed. Not to mention, a British fleet under the command of Vice Admiral Horatio Nelson, another one of those ridiculously talented commanders, one of the best ever, who's going to come back as one of the main opponents of Napoleon in the upcoming wars, that fleet utterly devastates the French fleet in a naval battle on the Nile River. And so the French are largely stuck in Egypt. Napoleon felt like there was nothing in Egypt that was worthy of his ambition. He's trapped in a dead end. Meanwhile, he's getting some miserable reports from France. Apparently, they had lost most of the territory that he had gained in Italy, and the republics that he established were collapsing. More than that, France is under threat of invasion by other European powers, and there was this widespread political instability. The Directory was at risk of losing control. Egypt was a dead end. The opportunity was back in France. Taking this into consideration, Napoleon does something that might be the most controversial move he ever pulled. He abandons his army in Egypt takes a few of his closest associates with him, and sails back to France, narrowly dodging the forces of the Royal Navy. By all accounts, the Egyptian campaign was an utter failure for Napoleon, but he was going to turn it into a success. Napoleon arrives in Paris in October 1799. If he was a hero when he came back from Italy, he was even more so now. There was literal hysteria in the streets when he returned. There was a triumphal march like the old Roman emperors and conquerors used to have, and people were screaming and parading, saying, He will save the country! He will save the country! They were treating him as if he had had an unprecedented success in Egypt, when in reality the results were mixed at best. But things were bad in France late 1799, and the people needed someone to look up to. Napoleon is about to start making some major moves, but first he needs to figure out what's going to happen with Josephine. She was his first stop after arriving in Paris and receiving his parade. And what happened is actually really interesting. He had said back in Egypt that he planned to divorce her as soon as he returned. By all accounts, they had a massive fight. But it actually turned out okay. It seems like now, on the verge of losing him, Josephine realizes that she actually truly loves Napoleon now, and she never cheated on him again for the rest of her life. And Napoleon, after being made a laughingstock while he was in Egypt, forgives her totally. This was a new phase of them together. After being married and apart for three years, they found finally felt a legitimate love for each other. And for the rest of their lives, their relationship was actually pretty positive. So that worked out for them. But now the Directory is in an awkward position. Are they going to arrest him for deserting his army in Egypt, or congratulate him for success? The choice is clear. Even if they really wanted to arrest him, they couldn't do it. Their own military force was part of the crowd that was cheering his return. By absolutely every measure, the Directory was failing. There was no good leadership, and when he returned, Napoleon was quoted as saying that, quote, only a ghost of a government remains in France, end quote. What happened next is difficult for historians to piece together. Napoleon usually wrote an average of 15 letters a day, but it appears that at this point, he suddenly stopped writing letters altogether. No records remain. What he was about to do couldn't leave a paper trail. 
but the historic event that was about to happen wasn't actually his plan. It was the plan of someone who has been working in the background this whole time. None other than the Abbe C.S., author of the pamphlet that became the Manifesto of the Revolution. C.S. has just been made a member of the Directory, but he knew that it was too weak and corrupt to make any meaningful changes. C.S. was about to save France, slicing through the failing government to bring forward a new era. All he needed was a sword to swing. And to C.S., there was only one real choice as to who his sword would be. Alan Joubert. But he got shot in the heart defending Italy, so that wasn't going to work. So we went to his second choice, and they said no. And then a bunch more people said no. And so, at the insistence of one Monsieur Talleyrand, Siez was forced to turn to a man that he personally hated. But Napoleon Bonaparte is not a sword to be swung, a tool to be used. He was a force of nature. It cannot be overstated just how dangerous a position France was in. It was at war with an alliance of Britain, Portugal, Turkey, Austria, and the new edition, Russia, all at the same time. While Napoleon was away, the War of the Second Coalition was raging. As if that wasn't dangerous enough, France was also on the verge of war with the newly founded United States of America. Remember earlier when France gave America stupidly large loans so it could beat the British in the War of American Independence? Well, America has pulled a very American move and decided to stop repaying that debt, as it was owed to a regime that technically was no longer in power. And this is coming at the absolute worst time. France is on the brink of collapse, and so there are some small-scale naval battles happening between America and France. But because there was no official declaration of war, it was called the Quasi-War. But the biggest problem facing France didn't come from outside. It was, once again, a financial crisis. There was a ridiculous amount of hyperinflation going on, not dissimilar from the kind that happened during the interwar years in Germany. And solving that kind of hyperinflation will always earn you some major political brownie points. In the German example, Hitler is going to take advantage of that much later. In contrast to the current situation in France, people looked at Napoleon and what he had done in Italy, and what he had tried to do in Egypt, create a strong, centralized, efficient republic. But Napoleon was only 30, and he's still too young to join the Directory. What is he going to do? Here's what we know. Napoleon started openly criticizing the Directory. That used to get you guillotined, but not anymore. It's likely that Napoleon was conspiring with Siez and others, planning with his usual level of meticulousness. But it wasn't until the dinner he had with one Paul Barat that made up his mind. Barat, talking idly, said that another man, General Gabriel de Houdeville, who had just lost Italy, should become the president to save the republic. And oh, Napoleon, you should just go back to being a general. You were really good at that. Napoleon responded with a blank stare. And immediately, Barat realized who he was talking to and started to apologize. Napoleon politely excused himself from the table and left. Barat, panicking at his mistake, visited Napoleon's residence the next morning, desperate to apologize. But Napoleon didn't answer. The Directory had started to panic too. They offered Napoleon literally any foreign command he wanted. He could go back to Egypt, he could evade Britain, anything to get him out of France. But Napoleon sent a letter back saying that he was ill and could not indulge a request at the moment. Everyone knew what was about to happen. The ball was almost at the bottom of the hill. Napoleon attends another dinner with important figures in Parisian society, and one of them tells him, You'll be guillotined for this. Napoleon responds, We'll see. 
The plan, created by Siez and about to be executed by Napoleon, had two stages. First, Siez and his ally, a man named Duroc, resigned from the directory. Talleyrand was given two million francs to bribe Barat to do the same. But in true Talleyrand fashion, he convinced Barat to use some smooth talking and then just pocketed the money for himself. The last two realized what was happening and started trying to defend themselves, but they were quickly placed under house arrest by members of the military. The directory had been forcefully disbanded. Next, there were the other governing bodies in France. Siez and Napoleon called a special meeting of the Elders, the House of the Ancients, the Upper House of Parliament. They said that due to an emerging threat from the Jacobins, an alliance with Britain, a threat which was mostly made up, they would move tomorrow's meeting out of the center of Paris and to an old Bourbon palace in Saint-Cloud, which took them far away from the angry Parisian mobs. To make sure they were all safe, Siez convinced them to put Napoleon in charge of the entire military force in Paris, the 17th Battalion. And because almost the entire city was wrapped up in Napoleon's cult of personality, nobody complained. The second stage took place the next day. At six o'clock in the morning, in the thick fog that the revolutionary month of Brumière was named for, sixty officers gathered in the courtyard of the Rue de la Victoire, where Napoleon was staying. When Napoleon emerged, he gave the men an impassioned speech, impressing on them the danger that the doomed republic was in, and he called on the men to swear personal loyalty to him. And they did. Meanwhile, Siez was in the Tuileries, the main palace in Paris, which served as the government building. Siez was busily writing and passing decrees, giving Napoleon officially command of the local police and the National Guard. Upon receiving word of this, Napoleon had changed into his general's uniform and set out with the entire 17th Battalion for the Luxembourg Palace. Last year, the Minister of War had expressly forbidden any military movements in the city. Napoleon ignored him. Right outside the Luxembourg Palace, there's a large octagonal courtyard. Before the Revolution, there was this gigantic statue of Louis XV. But when the revolution broke out, the statue was torn down and replaced with the gigantic guillotine. And that's where most of the executions for the Reign of Terror took place. That's where the king and queen were executed. It became known as the Place de la Révolution. And as the 17th Battalion passed it, Napoleon stopped them and urged them to look at the guillotine. And he told them, Either we sleep at the Luxembourg tonight, or we'll finish up here. The entire Council of Elders was assembled and waiting. Napoleon stepped into the room, addressed the crowd, and choked. He fumbled a speech. He stuttered, he lost control of the crowd, and people started yelling at him, screaming, Traitor! Dictator! Tyrant! He was assaulted and forced to leave the room. It was one of the only times in his life he would admit that he totally lost his nerve. The whole operation would have failed if he hadn't had a friend on the inside. As the room devolved into chaos, the newly elected president of the group stepped forward and resumed the speech. It was none other than Lucien Bonaparte, one of Napoleon's younger brothers, that had been building up influence in Paris over the course of the revolution. Lucien started to turn the crowd around. At one point, he even brought his brother back into the room and pointed a sword at his chest, saying that he would kill Napoleon himself if he failed the country. It's hard to know how much of an impact the army standing outside the doors of the chamber had on the decision. But after botching the first phase, Napoleon's coup was completed. The Directory was abolished. Both chambers of the legislature were abolished. And the Constitution of the Year Three, contributed by Siez himself, 
was abolished. They had done it. Without a single person killed, they had overthrown the state. Now it was time to rebuild it. The new governing body was known as the Consulate, modeled after the triumvirate system of ancient Rome, and it was made of three members called consuls. Napoleon, Siez, and Duroc, the guy we mentioned earlier. And the tension between Napoleon and Siez was clear, immediately. The previous constitutions written by Siez reflected the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, separating the powers of the government into several different branches, while Napoleon himself favored the concentration of power into one office. There was some political struggle and maneuvering, and I'm sure Napoleon's propaganda team was busy as hell, but the mass hysteria surrounding Napoleon proved to be too much. He was the center of attention, the hero of the nation, and eventually he paid Siez off, bought up a nice house, and Siez backed off. Technically speaking, all three men held equal power in the new government they were soon to construct. But when they met for the first time, Duroc told government, there should be no vote for who should lead. The position is yours by right. You can only imagine how much that pissed off CS. Remember that he thought that he was going to be the real overseer of everything, while Napoleon was just a tool to be used. But Napoleon responded to Duroc, saying, Oh, that's nonsense. We'll rotate the leadership every 24 hours. But then he sat down at the biggest chair in the center of the table and said, Let's begin. It was clear who was in charge. The French Revolution was over. Now it was the age of Napoleon, and he was still just getting started. Thank you all so much for checking out episode one of the Sapiens Pantheon podcast. Next time we're picking up right where we left off, watching Napoleon as he maneuvers his way into greater and greater power and throws Europe into the period that history is deemed the Napoleonic Wars. If you like the podcast and want to see more in the future, the most helpful thing you can do is subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Our intro music was done by Antti Lavodi, and you can find him on Reddit as u slash MrLoop. All sound effects came from zapsplat.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll hopefully see you next time so we can finish Napoleon's story.